the corruption of the king reflects the corruption of the state. So what does it mean when your state's problem is that people are having really gross sex? Welcome to This Shakespeare is Gay, a podcast that goes play-by-play to prove that each and every Shakespeare play is a little bit gay. This week, Measure for Measure. Emma. Hello. This play almost broke us. Yeah, it really did on a lot of levels. This was the one where we were like, oh no. <laughs> four, four in, we already played ourselves. We're already, we've already failed, but we didn't. In the we end, didn't. we are here today to tell you why Measure for Measure is gay. That's right. And we don't even feel bad about it. It's not even one of those. We were like, this is going to be one of those ones where we might have to turn it inside out and be like, all right, how would you make Measure for Measure gay if you had to make Measure for Measure gay? Because that's the cosmic punishment we set ourselves. Right. Or like, we're just going to say it until we believe it, which is definitely yeah. something that we've done. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, not for any of the podcasts no. in this series, but no. in our previous but, podcast, this movie yeah. is gay. <laughs> However, in the end, uh, Shakespeare gayed it right up for us. So, you know, here we are. <laughs> Here we are um, to, I think, give a brief recap because mm-hmm. I think Measure for Measure is maybe a lesser known play or at least a lesser performed play, mm-hmm. though, given Me Too, et cetera, I feel like it's gotten, it gets trendy. It's had a from bit time of a renaissance, time. yeah, in the last several years. Um, but the basic overview is in a world where sex is illegal, <laughs> um, a woman gets propositioned by a magistrate in a horrible blackmail deal to save her brother's life, who is in jail for the aforementioned illegal sex. <laughs> and the resolution to this problem is absolute chaos. <laughs> yeah, the resolution to that in all problems is unnecessary disguise for five acts, bait and switches <laughs> of all kinds, venereal disease in every corner. It's, it's- just... Yeah, it's a, I mean, I can't, the trigger warnings for this are just like, so, I mean, we're going to Every talk, single one, all of them. We're going to talk <laughs> about rape. We're going to talk about coercion. We're going to talk about abuses mm-hmm. of power. Mm-hmm. Any sex related topic is just dealt mm-hmm. with in this play in a disgusting way. So mm-hmm. be, you know, take care mm-hmm. of yourself. Going to talk about sex work. Going to talk about disease. Everything yeah. is here. We don't like this play. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I don't like this play. <laughs> that's that's fair. You, I mean, and you did warn the listener that at the end of our Othello episode. But what you said at the time, which I will now bend you to remember, it, it was you don't like it, but it is very interesting. And I think at the very least, we have that. And yeah, it is very interesting. Yeah. Why don't we dive right in with Act One? Mm-hmm. Um, again in a world where sex is illegal. I mean, can't stress that enough. (laughs) I think I just, I mean, this is the thing, right? I feel like I just want to, in keeping with the kind of topics that we have returned to again and again, starting with Hamlet, the way in which heterosexuality gets set up in the, the worlds of these plays, you know, like at the beginning of Hamlet, Hamlet is already like, time is out of joint, marriages are messed up, everything in the world is going wrong. And I feel like sex is somehow at the root of it. Mm -hmm. 
And I feel like measure for measures Vienna is that times a thousand million. Like the thing, the ideas we get at the very beginning of this play are an extended scene of jokes about venereal disease. The news that someone has gotten arrested and is going to be killed for having sex. Mm -hmm. And just a general sense that like, this is a completely lawless city where people have been having like, disgusting sex on every corner but like in a really again like a really sex negative way like I'm like I am not disgusted by sex that's not what I'm saying but just the idea that like this play is measure for measure is yeah it's really interesting because it the strata of of the people involved in measure for measure are either whim it does one of those great Shakespeare tricks where the people you initially meet are at the highest levels of power sort of looking down and observing the situation that you're setting up in the city, but then immediately the other people who you meet who are consistently involved in the play are people whose actual trade is sex work either as like, I mean, mostly as as bods or, you know, madams, like sort of madam pimp type characters um, who, who the law that is enacted at the beginning of Measure for Measure effects because it's gonna ruin their livelihood. And it's really, really interesting because, oh, and there's also there's also an unwanted pregnancy set up right at the beginning because, mm-hmm. so it's just like, it's not going well, but it's, it's interesting because it's like the, the from the top and the bottom POV of it I've always found really interesting. The fact that the, you know, that Pompey and Mistress Overdone and everybody aren't like grace notes, but they're actually like their situation and whether or not they're going to have to go to prison and whether or not, you know, like the sex trade as a thing, the the question of whether or not you can even abolish it, you Mm -hmm. know, is sort of a major question of the play. And of course those people are, there's Pompey has great text that I'll find in a minute about how like, no, this is a fruitless you can't get rid of this. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that is, while you're looking, something that the play, so the kind of premise at the beginning of the play, right, is that the Duke is, for inexplicable reasons, leaving town, so he says, and leaving his deputy, Angelo, in charge. And he's not actually going anywhere. What he's going to do is linger around in disguise and watch how things go. But the thing that he says, essentially, like, kind of, in this act, but also later on when people justifiably are like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Is essentially like things have gotten so out of control and I have done such a bad job of implementing any laws that I feel like it would be hypocritical and impossible for me to impose order now. So I need someone else to do it for me. And I just think that it's A, that's insane. And B, it's just fascinating that like, the form of lawlessness very specifically is an unbridled sex trade and mm-hmm. kind of out of control sexuality. Yeah. And the, the, so since you've brought us right there, the thing of the Duke starting the play by being like, I'm going to leave my guy Angelo in charge and see what happens. And there's lots of layers to unpack there, but it's like, it's that he's let everything get to this point and not punished anyone. But also something I find really interesting, which I feel like is going to be super important to this conversation is the question of whether or not, not only has the Duke allowed this kind of trade to take, you know, to sort of spring up and take over the city, but that he is also in some kind of darker way implicated in it. Like the, the question of his, 
the question of his nature and in a way his own fitness for leadership is sort of one of the lurking questions of the play that makes it so interesting because he starts by removing himself except for not removing himself and he has text i'm just going to jump right to it it's in, in um when he goes to a monastery essentially in the middle of act one and is like give me a cloak i'm gonna hang around and pretend to be a friar because this is a very this is a catholic city vienna i've always found that interesting too right that it's like this is a very sex negative place set in a very catholic place i mean we know how the catholics feel about sex well shakespeare does too apparently you know it's interesting that he chooses to set it there and but there's this piece of text where the duke says to this friar where the friar understandably is like hold on, why? And then he's like, no, no, give me this disguise. He says, Sith was my fault to give the people scope. Twould be my tyranny to strike and gall them for what I bid them do. For we bid this be done when evil deeds have their permissive pass and not the punishment. Therefore, indeed, my father, I have on Angelo imposed the office who may in the ambush of my name strike home and yet my nature never in the fight to do in slander. Yes. So this leads me to a sort of theory I've been, as I was reading this, I'm like, as I mentioned, this almost broke us for a while. We were both like, this place isn't <laughs> gay. It hates sex, yes. but like, it doesn't, yeah. not in a queer way per se, yeah. um, hates heterosexual sex, mm. I should say. Um, but thinking a lot about the symbolism of the Duke as a leader and the mm. idea, you know, that you see all the time in place of the period that like, the character of the nation, or in this case, the city reflects the character of the ruler. And there's like this trend in plays not by Shakespeare, where like it's plays about a ruler who really wants to have sex with a commoner who does not want to have sex with him. And the sort of moral of this is like a man who can't control his sexuality is Mm -hmm. symbolically a bad ruler because like he will rape the motherland just like he wants to rape these women essentially and so there's something in the symbolism of like yeah the dukes maybe literal but also symbolic kind of sexualization through being like you are the person whose illicit sexual habits have made Mm -hmm. your city full of this yes and i think that there's something interesting in Angelo's position in this. Um, I've mentioned it before. I have a feeling I've got to mention it a lot. The sort of role of the favorite Mm. and the idea of, I didn't really explain it last time, but like, you know, this figure of a person who a king usually or a prince or other ruler has as their kind of same sex, usually both men, best friend, who's maybe more and whose presence makes people very anxious and gets talked about and really sort of like sexualized and weird terms throughout the period. And one Mm. of the sort of marks of that is like, you know, you see this in like Marlowe's Edward II, you give your favorite random jobs for no reason. Like, oh, you're going to be the Duke of what's it now? You're going to be, you know, the chancellor of the exchequer now. That's like one of the ways you show favor to your favorite. And I sort of everyone just being like, is Angelo up for this? Like, who even is this person? What are you doing? Just felt really like the Duke giving his favorite a job Mm. he isn't fit for vibes and the whole, all the kind of questions that come with why is he giving this person this job? Where is he going? Why isn't he being responsible? Why is he kind Mm -hmm. of deferring to this nobody are all questions that get asked about favorites as well. Sorry, that was really long, but it was just like- No, no, that's super interesting. 
That's super interesting because we don't get much of a sense. Um, I, th I like that idea hovering over it because we don't get that much of a sense of the relationship between the Duke and Angelo at the beginning because the Duke leaves so quickly. So it's mm -hmm. only the things that other people say about each of them that can kind of contextualize sort of where they are in the government and, you know, in relation to each other. And um, it's interesting because I think that idea is sort of side by side with the fact that the Duke seems to frame it like to the friar anyway, in this scene when he's explaining it, you know, it's sort of the sense that if all of this secretly is emanating from me, then it's weird because the Angelo thing is like, he will be the opposite. He is, he has mm -hmm. like, he will be the opposite of me. He has the opposite character. But at the same time, even as the Duke is like, I want to see what he'll do because he is this very cold you know, uh, rational, un unsensual, you know, human, even in the same breath, basically, the Dukes expresses a sort of suspicion that that won't last or really isn't the case, or that, like, for certain people, you have to, like, it's, it's one thing to profess that you would, you know, act a certain way until you are presented with the opportunity to do different, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's a weird, there's a weird test thing going on. I mean, let me point to some actual language because later in that same scene, he says to the, I think still the friar, the Duke says, Lord Angelo is precise, stands at a guard with envy, scarce confesses that his blood flows or that his appetite is more to bread than stone. Hence shall we see if power change purpose, what our seamers be. And I had like a, a conniption about the word seeming and how often it appears in this play, because that's just, again, what we're doing is just free associating our way through the plays that are like, what does it mean to seem one thing and be another? And that's like a core concept in this play. Yeah, if, you, if it's all right to jump yeah. ahead to just to pull a quote from act three, because I think we're yeah. going to talk about some other things when we get to act three, Lucio, yeah. this sort of courtier friend of Isabella and her brother, who sort of hangs around causing trouble, is asked to describe um, Angelo by the Duke in disguise. He says, they say this Angelo was not made by man and woman after the downright way of creation. Is it yeah. true? Thank you. And the Duke says, how should he be made then? Um, Lucio says, some report a sea maid spawned him, some that he was begot between two stockfishes, but it is certain that when he makes water, his urine is congealed ice. I know that to be true. Yes. Yes. And the th and Lucio, Lucio also says about Angelo as somewhere in act one or two, he, he describes him as a man, I think to Isabella, as a man whose blood is very snow broth. And these are like, all... Well, I mean, this is not to get like weird, but like, yeah, in terms of the humors, <laughs> um, which is like a fundamental part of how, you know, people conceived of like gendered behavior. Right, I think it right. is that women are cold and men are hot. Interesting. And obviously sex is a heating action, right. but you know, you'll see sort of, um, this is, you get this in uh, Henry the Fourth Part Two. Mm. Um, 
when Falstaff is complaining of somebody and, you know, says that like they're cold and it's a, he describes him as a man who's like basically like a woman. He's like, he has a kind of male green sickness, which is like anemia, but the cure was supposed to be having sex. So only virgins got it. Um, But it sounds right. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like really medically sound, but it's something about just sort of associate. It just reminded me of like this other scene where someone sort of gets associated with like a sort of feminine virginity. Yeah, I guess. Like yeah, a womanly coldness. Mm. And it's just like, it's all throughout the play. This thing of like, he's cold. But but the weirdness of that couplet that the Duke has to the friar at the end of that thing of, you know, appetite more to bread than stone. Hence, we shall see if power change purpose, what our seamers be. That to me always carries this sense of like, well, this is what he presents as, but stay tuned. And it's the sort of stay tuned energy that kind of carries us forward in the play. So it's weird because the Duke's party line, he starts the play in a scene in a, you know, in like a stateroom kind of official, official capacity scene with Aeschylus, who is, you know, some kind of government official and Angelo, where he officially nominates Angelo, his kind of regent in his absence. And Angelo's like, no, crazy. And then he's like, no, no. And the Duke takes pains to be like, do whatever you think is best. I really trust your judgment before he disappears. It's weird because the outward impression of the Duke's plan is, you know, Angelo will do a good job at this and I need him to kind of crack down. But then right away, the inward of that plan is, yes, but will he? I want to see what happens if I leave him in power for even a minute. And what's interesting as well is that the Duke isn't opposed, I don't think, to the way Angelo is handling things until the issue with Isabella arises, which maybe we can get into as we transition Mm -hmm. to act two. But like one of the scenes we have is he's talking to Juliet, the Mm. woman who's been impregnated and her and her not husband or both in jail for it. And he's sort of like, well, what can you do? You broke the law. Like his attitude isn't like, man, Angelo's gone too far. He's like, this is kind of what I asked for. This is sort of what needs to happen. And then a line gets crossed. Which is brilliant because the interesting thing about that is it feels like at the cost of, there's a way of reading this play that is like at the cost of whatever happens to anyone in Vienna, his city, the Duke is conducting a science experiment to see if Angelo will realize that he is a sexual human being. Yes. And I think something that we can maybe, before we move forward, a framework that I think we were both talking about was Mm. one of the things that begins to feel, I mean, I have a lot more to say about this as a framework, Mm. but one of the things that at least feels anti-straight about this play is the fact that sex in this world is everything except a genuine connection between two people or even just pleasure without connection. Yeah. And I think maybe we can run through sort of all the different things it gets used for and used as, but it never kind of just gets to be sex. Yeah, it's just everything but sex. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So maybe we should move into act two when, Mm -hmm. I mean, the only good act in the play in my (laughs) biased opinion where all the good scenes are. Yeah, it, it's 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 gnarly. It's gnarly. I mean, act three, act three's got some got some bangers, but yeah. Um, but whenever people want to do measure for measure, this is the act this. they're thinking about, and they forget there's four more. So what happens here is 
Angelo's anti-sex law has resulted in the arrest of Claudio and Claudio's sister, Isabella, who is a nun or a novice. She's not, she has not taken vows yet, but is in process. Um, finds out the play. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Finds <laughs> out this is happening, goes to Angelo to plead for her brother. Angelo falls in lust slash love, mm-hmm. but mostly lust at first sight and basically propositions her and says, I will save your brother's life if you sleep with me. It's fully a plot founded on a would you rather. He And I say that because he literally frames it textually as a would you rather. Would you rather sleep with me or have your brother die? And then she goes to Claudio and is like, would you rather have me get raped or die? Uh-huh. And then pretty quickly in a great, in a great and difficult scene, Claudio starts by being like, oh my God, that rat, what a horrible man. And she's like, great, I knew you'd feel that way. You're making our dead father proud. And then really quickly he's like... <laughs> Ooh, but death though, as I think about it more, uh, as I've thought about it more, death though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, they are two, I mean, it, it is a series of really incredible scenes, especially yeah, the scenes is. with Angelo who speaks, who, I mean, abuses his power in a very contemporary feeling way. Yes. But again, it is yet another instance mm-hmm. of we get you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> sex as, I mean, a test kind of, a test yeah. for both, a test for Isabella, for Claudio, and for, as you were saying, Angelo himself. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, what's weird about it is that the Duke has framed this question. I, the Duke has framed the question in an actual way, in, in such a clear way of like, he's this cold mountain of ice let's see if he melts basically. And what's great about that, what feels so kind of like, you know, um, contemporary and re- and, uh, you know, psychologically real about Angelo, which I think is partly why people are drawn to the play is that Shakespeare actually gives us a, the speech where he realizes, where he realizes that he does have a sexual impulse and it ends with, you know, the, the incredibly great couplet, um, ever till now when men were fond, I smiled and wondered how. You know, that thing of like, he literally has never felt a sexual impulse that he has, you know, permitted and recognized in his own person until this moment. And then he gets to have this speech to the audience where he's basically like, holy, you know, holy shit, I'm melting, you know, and then, and then he knows that what he's, he even consciously knows that what he's doing is an abuse of power and articulates that and does it anyway you know Mm -hmm. I mean there's that crazy line about now I give my sensual race the rain or something like that but the I mean and the famous you know when he says Isabella says I'm gonna tell and he says who will believe thee yeah and then yeah the calculation of that yeah the first the equally sort of to whom shall I complain right you know it just it feels very real and I think it is key the thing you've said that it's the introduction of power as much as a discovery of sexuality because this wouldn't be as much of a problem if he didn't have the power to abuse in order to act on it exactly 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 and it's I don't know it's just the there's a lot of language about seeming and I'm not going to spend all of my life on it but um but (laughs) Angelo uses it himself in a way that is such a good um uh, you know, this thing of, of Lucio saying a man whose blood is very snow broth or whatever. At some point in act two, Angelo has the text, um, oh place, oh form, how often dost thou with thy case, thy habit wrench off from fools and tie the wiser soul to thy false seeming blood, thou art blood. 
Yeah. And I mean, blood thou art blood is like, that's it right there. You know, it's just, yeah. Yeah. But it, it is, I mean, there's just so much here in the sense of like, you'd think mm-hmm. blood thou art blood would be a defense of something good. Yeah, no, but it's instead, it's the realization that like, oh, I'm made, I'm a body the same as everybody else. Like, and, Yeah. I mean, and I think that like, there's so like, there's in a culture that is so fixated on self-control and chastity as you know early modern culture was like obviously people are having a lot of sex like the rates of like Mm. children out of wedlock was like actually insane which was for a lot of financial reasons um but like really surprising when you think about (laughs) insanely high insanely high yeah it was like a whole it was like something like i mean yeah it had to do with people not being able to afford to get married rather than right. like people feeling chill about marriage out of wedlock. But still, right. <laughs> it's just like when you have a culture where like on the one hand, you know, marriage is like a, a sacrament. I mean, in, for Catholics, but, you know, it's like an essential mm-hmm. part of the sort of life cycle of a culture. You have to get married. You have to have sex. But also it's like you're supposed mm. to hate and be afraid of sex. But like also we recognize that you do secretly want it. And it's just like. Yeah. It is so fat. I feel like this is a play, maybe most of all, where all of those anxieties really just uh-huh. sort of like braid together. But it's interesting that it's like the temptation is not nice. It's not good. I feel like there are other playwrights of this period who make mm. sex seem like something you would ever want to do. That's true. That's true. That's true. And yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. The closest, I was thinking about what you said about how sex is everything except for an actual connection between humans. And you know, what's so interesting is that the closest, the best scenes in this play are all in act two and the closest that anyone ever gets to an actual connection in the play measure for measure are these two um, really, really high octane sort of philosophical debate scenes between Angelo and Isabella. Uh, both before and after he makes this proposition explicit. And it's interesting because people are capable, like it's weird because his lust for her is lust of the body, but also the, the, the realist anyone has been about anything is the two of them in this conversation about whether or not mercy is just or weak, whether or not, you know, I mean, the, the, the intellectual framing of the scenes is, you know, I mean, like they, they have bigger, deeper, realer conversations than Isabella ever has with the Duke, for example. Yeah. It's so I was looking for trying to find some like scholarship, queer scholarship around this play. And I didn't find much that I thought kind of fit with our purposes. But one of the ones I found, so there's a line and maybe you could find it um, Mm. where Angelo says something about, oh, the heavens that to tempt a saint, like bring a saint. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. With the, yeah. With the, with a saint doth bait thy hook is the. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so this article was called same saint desire. Um, (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, because he's described as being this very cold, like intellectual man. And then in walks this nun and in the speech that has, that has ever till now, you know, he has that thing where he's like, um, never could the strumpet with all her double vigor art and nature uh, you know, like move me, but this 
modest, you know, like woman subdues me quite is the line, you know, of just the fact that like something about the coldness of her attracts him. Well, he, yeah, he says like the more she pleads against this, the more I like her because I love, like, she's so smart. She's so good at this. Her morals are so pure, but like there is something in, I mean, same Saint desire is insane. That's really fun. That's Um, really funny. Yeah. But also that, yeah, there's a fundamental sameness to them, I think is um, really interesting and I get quite frustrated about this play in general, as you've noticed, but also like really often when people do this play, you read reviews and the reviews get really fixated on, on how much chemistry Angelo and Isabella have. I feel like I've read a lot of reviews mm-hmm. of productions where they are like, oh, well, they just didn't have any chemistry. There was no like spark. There was no fire. And I it really bugs me. Like this is a tangent, but it is just like yeah. one of the big hangups about this play is like, I think Isabella's dilemma is really hard for a modern audience to understand, especially when you have the actual scene where Claudio's like, are you kidding? You want me to die? Yeah. And so people sort of seem to desperately seek a sense that Angelo's kind of repressed attraction is reciprocated yeah. in her. And I just don't think that's there. No, no. I mean, it's interesting because I think people really have difficulty. So when Isabella exits the scene where Angelo propositions her and then he says, you know, um, who will believe thee and she has the to whom shall I complain speech. The end of that speech as she sort of worked herself around it is more than our brother is our chastity. Like she comes to the, she, she asks the rhetorical question of the audience, basically like, should I do this to save his life? And her answer is more than our brother is our chastity. And I think that a modern audience, I think we live in a really death averse culture that doesn't value virginity. Well, so right. I, you know, I mean like part and of it is we, we don't understand that. Yeah. Live in a really secular culture. I mean, and I think this is probably part of why she's Catholic is right. There is no, you know, it's, you have sex, you go to hell. Like it's a much more one-to-one action to damnation economy than, you know, the Protestants have. (laughs) Action to damnation economy. No, that's really, that's really true though. We don't understand how she thinks, you know, like that thing, that thing of like, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it is, I think you're, point is all sort of separate in a way that it is kind of bananas for people to demand sexual chemistry between a sort of would-be rapist and a victim you know and an assault victim I mean that's a pretty crazy thing to demand I mean I think really particularly the play doesn't put that there but it doesn't I mean and actually sorry so (laughs) another sidebar Mm -hmm. some self-promotion if I may so I'm I'm working on a new project called Shakespeare and Consent you can find it on Mm -hmm. Twitter um and I was reading this play the other day and it just really struck me um how as a culture, there is a desperation in many plays that want to kind of condemn adultery. It's like, you just have to get the woman to say yes a little, and then it's her fault. And then it's all okay because it's her fault and it's whatever. And that is just like so aggressively not the choice that Shakespeare makes. He leaves Mm. no window for you to wonder, does Mm. Isabella want this even a little? Yeah. Yeah. Because she, she articulates in every, well, and it's so funny because she articulates in every kind of way that she 
doesn't want it. And that, you know, more than our brother is our chastity is massive. And also, I mean, people point to some of the slightly more florid language that does have kind of a sexual cast over it that she uses with Angelo in that second scene where she's saying, no, I won't, you know, I mean, like, he basically poses it first as a hypothetical of, you know, like say that someone in power wanted to have sex with you and it would save your brother's life. If that were the case, what would you, you know, I mean, like it, ge- it genuinely is a would you rather. It's so Never funny. have I ever. But, no, yeah, really. Right. It's so, so I have, so say I had a friend. It's so funny. Am but, I the um, asshole? <laughs> well, her people do point to, you know, she has some, there is a lot of, of very charged kind of morality is really charged in this play and in a sexual way. And there is a kind of, um, because everything is again, everything except sex is sex. Listen, uh, Janelle Monet said it best. Everything is sex except sex, which is power. Um, there except it for is. in this play, it's everything is sex except sex, which is death. Which is death, yeah. Which is death by venereal disease or execution. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, no, the, the the language that I was, you know, she has a moment where she's like, I'd rather be essentially martyred in a religious way than, than do that. But the line is the impression of keen whips I'd wear as rubies and strip myself to death as to a bed. And people are like, hold on, (laughs) we're getting not to kink shame anyone, but, you know, and I mean, there is a level of kind of heat linguistically that starts to creep into her side of the argument as well. But um, Hildegard von Bingen says, get in line, man. We've been eroticizing (laughs) our relationship with the divine since the like 10th century. Exactly. I think what's interesting is that people assume that the, the source of that for Isabella is the man that she's speaking to rather than her relationship with the divine, which is actually the thing that she is very clear about that is motivating her throughout the play. And like, to judge by her language, the only partner who's getting anyone off, really. (laughs) No one else is, no one else is having orgasms from their horrible, horrible sex, except for Isabella from her sex. From God. God. (laughs) Yeah. Listen, um, but yeah, so ha- this is all you may you might think. How is this related to the gay the gayness? I think the saint the saint for saint thing is hilarious, and I think that we're right to kind of circle a sameness around Angelo and Isabella because it's this thing of like if you could have well there are actual monks in this play, but like if you could have a man that feels like a nun at the beginning of the play, Angelo is that man. And then the recognition of a sameness in her is what triggers his like sexual awakening basically that he consciously chooses to use his power to pursue. And so basically just somehow we have to thread this back to the idea that he's just done exactly what the Duke sort of implicitly was waiting for him to do. And also what the Duke does. Let's get back to our friend Vincentio. Let's let's pin this because hang on, it's just occurred to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Duke kind of does gaslights and abuses Isabella too. So how, how mad is he? But I mean, there's something like, not to venture in the territory of like a thesis statement for this entire podcast, 
but it's like <laughs> in a world <laughs> where I mean, you know, I'm never going to stop harping on the idea that like we can't apply mm-hmm. modern ideas about sexuality to a pre-modern period. There's just so right. many ways in which they did not think of themselves in these terms, but it's like a play like this, mm-hmm. scenes like this just feel like someone <laughs> being like heterosexuality is so compromised in every respect. Mm-hmm. It is terrifying. It is filthy. It is mm-hmm. just horrible. And groping for an alternative that doesn't exist yeah 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 it's so funny because in the context of this horrible play you said the word groping and yeah. all I could think of was Lucio's line for groping for no Pompey's line for groping for trouts in a peculiar river which tells you a little bit about the language choices in certain quarters of this play. What do you mean that's so sensual and beautiful and makes me think that sex is so fun? You know, groping for trouts in a peculiar river. Uh, Yeah. It just, I mean, and like, and it's like the alternative that exists is Mm -hmm. Isabella's, you know, relationship with God, like Mm -hmm. to find a new form of sexuality that doesn't involve a human partner at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because I feel like the temptation for, the temptation for some interpreters of the material, I think, is to look at Isabella and see and try to create a really clean push and pull between sexuality is human and ter- and frightening and being offered in front of you. And the divine is chaste and repressive and about a denial of the body. But the divine, clearly, I think if you listen to her speak, doesn't have to involve a denial of the body. And also in this period, you're meant to deny your body. Yes. Like, that's not a bad thing to do. Right. Right. It's maybe bad when you take it to the extreme that Angelo has, but like, you are very much not supposed to give in to your impulses to have sex with random men who proposition you. That's bad. Listen, yeah, I'm not, is. they think it's bad. I, am yeah. bad. you know, do no, you, no, you, do no, you. I know, I know. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's a confusing, the braid of, of temptation and morality is, is why this play is such a psychosexual nightmare. So, so to flow us into act three, you know, Isabella decide, you know, goes to her brother determined to refuse Angelo and get her brother's soul ready for death. Claudio, like we've said, you know, is like, wait, hang on. I'd actually rather not die though. Also something I think we could all be thinking a tiny bit more about, not that I think Isabella should do it, is that, you know, his his not wife and his unborn child are in this play and Shakespeare does make them visible. I think it's one of the only, it's one of the only times you ever see a pregnant woman in Shakespeare. Uh, you know, Julia. Yeah, I mean, there's a handful. Yeah, Juliet pops up and, you know, talks about her, is able to express her thing. And so part of you is like, actually, I don't want this man to die also because of his family. But no, I mean, yeah, I feel like I don't mean to say that, like, chastity is good. Therefore, Angela is doing the right thing. Like, no, of course, of course. I think it's also clear that for all that Vienna is a cesspool, this is not the answer. Well, right. And well, what's so interesting, though, is that the Duke who doesn't leave, 
puts on a friar costume, starts showing up in the prison to confess people. This is how he talks to Juliet, the pregnant girlfriend, and how he ends up. So it's act three that begins with him giving what for my money might be the most depressing monologue in the canon to Claudio, <laughs> to Claudio, where Claudio's like trying to get his mind around the fact that he has to be executed tomorrow. And the Duke has this insanely long monologue that starts with be absolute for death. And then he goes through everything and is like, being alive, when you think about it, actually just sucks. Nothing about it is rewarding. You'll be free. You know, and Claudio's like, okay. And then out of that, Isabella shows up and they have the big confrontation. And then the Duke, the Duke through lurking, there's a lot of lurking in this play. It's through lurking in the prison that the Duke overhears Isabella's kind of confrontation with Claudio and thereby learns about what Angelo's done. And then he sort of pounces on her and is like, okay, have I got a plan for you, sister? And this is thinking of all the things that sex is that isn't sex. Like this is the act I think where sex becomes a tool. Yes. For Isabella and Claudio in their kind of debate, it's like, Mm the sex is the key to the prison, you know, it's nothing more than That's that. Great. Or, you right. know, the key to eternal damnation. But just like imagine being worried about eternal damnation. That's one of the, the things that is hardest when we approach plays like this, I think. And I'm speaking as a director of like the idea of like, God, imagine I'm doing, this is a sidebar, but I'm working in a workshop of Antigone right now. And it's a similar uh, play about, you know, sort of moral absolutes and the idea uh, the translation that we're using, Antigone has a line where she says, um, I would rather make friends in the underworld because I'll live there forever. And this idea of like, I mean, my God, like the idea of that. Yeah, it's not, it's hard to for us, internalize think. or convey. Yeah, I mean, for, you know, yeah. secular people, which most theater yeah. people are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's so... It's, but yeah, so, like, and it's it's never about, like, the act, you know? Right. Like, Claudio isn't thinking about what it would mean. And it, I think on, to some, on some level, Isabella isn't either, of, like, what mm. you will have to physically do. Yeah. And then as her and the Duke slash Friar begin making this terrible plan, <laughs> um, another sidebar, it really makes a lot of other Shakespeare plays make sense. If you imagine that every friar suggesting yes! terrible plans is this guy who isn't actually a friar at all. He's just committing some kind of fraud. I was thinking the other way, the other way where it makes sense that in order to commit this fraud and enact this terrible plan, our Duke is like, you know, it'll work. I'll have to be a friar. That's the only way people will trust my horrible plans. People expect friars to come up with incredibly also, bad ideas. And then inexplicably follow through with them because they are men of God. Yeah. It's so funny though, because every single friar is like fake your death and even on some corner of the plan that's even true here there's still a fake death yeah yeah but anyway but it also involves using sex as a tool again bringing in the fiance that angelo jilted um and kind of joining forces with her to enact justice on two fronts Yes. One wonders why was the why was justice for this woman not important to you at any point before uh-huh. now? You it's, were the duke. You super could have done something about this sooner. It's a great question. So basically, but it's another the, proof of like mm. intimacy, marriage, sex are nothing to the duke until he can use them as something to for Angelo. Yes. Like 
I mean, to get at Angelo. This is the thing is it's like the play, like I said, it's, it's mysterious because we start the play with the Duke being like, I've got to go for personal reasons. This is my guy. He's in charge of the city. You kind of don't really know how he feels about Angelo. And then as the play goes on, you're like, okay, hold on. Ostensibly, getting Mariana married to Angelo, who he said he would marry, but then jolted when her fortune went down in a shipwreck. Hilarious. Um, and I'm in get- problem. <laughs> if I had a nickel. And um, and getting Isabella, you know, like the, the sort of three-pronged plan is Mariana will end up with Angelo, Isabella won't have to have sex with him, and Claudio won't die. And- By way of a bed trick, the infamous, you will say you're going to sleep with him, but Mariana will go in your place and you'll just say, you know, you can't turn the lights on. It's going to have to be outside in a shed is actually the, <laughs> that's the, the move on this bed trick in Measure for Measure where we yeah, got later. When so about- many scenes about the gate and opening the gate. And oh my God, it's this like, play is so bad. What are we really talking about opening this gate? Hey. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, there, it's just so funny because it's like, even after the bed trick's taken place when, you know, Mariana's like, yep, I went to the shed. <laughs> and you're just like, What? anyway yeah the duke is like i will let you have sex with him but it will be horrible (laughs) yeah well like yeah so that's ostensibly his plan i'm just gonna briefly project ourselves forward to a moment that's gonna occur in act five where the sort of detritus of this plan is lying all around us and the duke in his own person says to isabella no you might wonder why since it's been me the whole time i did any of this (laughs) And then he doesn't really answer the question. He sure doesn't. He sure does not. I just think about that line. This whole, it's like, now you might wonder, you might well wonder why when uh, it was me all along. But yeah. When I, the Duke, could have stopped this at any time. At any time and saved a lot of people a lot of grief. So just to turn, like, to turn us back to this question, though, of why... Why, Duke Vincentio, Duke Vincentio, my homie, why, when you could at any turn throw off your friar cloak and stop the machine of this from happening, why do you continue to prioritize the science experiment you are running on Angelo over the actual fate of both of these women and this powerless man? And yeah, and I think we can get into the question of the women's side of it in Acts four and five, Mm. but I feel like there's some lines you wanted to highlight about maybe, maybe, maybe the Angelo side of it. This is when we got excited about this play. Uh, okay. This is the Lucio scene, right? Okay. So our friend Lucio, an incredibly interesting character who I love. Um, yeah, he's been hanging around. He hangs around a lot of the play. He sets Um, things in motion because he's the one who tells Isabella to go to Angelo to mm -hmm. beg for Claudio's life because he's friends Mm -hmm. with both of them. And then is the one who sort of is like, don't give up, like keep, (laughs) keep going. Yeah. Well, somehow this is what's so crazy about Lucio is that he's a really like, uh, interestingly fluid character socially because he's sort of a nobleman, but also is known by all of the pimps and bods of Vienna. And so like, you know, he knows Claudio from sort of the underworld, Boring. you know? And, yeah. And so 
Yeah, he, and yet he follows Isabella in a way that you feel like shouldn't be dramatically possible into the big scenes with Angelo and keeps telling, keeps sort of egging her on and Angelo seems not to see him. So it's a really, he's in a really interesting position in the play, but in act three, he has an incredibly interesting conversation with our friend, the Duke Friar. Um, As they are watching Mistress Overdone and who is a, a sort of a madam and a couple of other people being hauled away to prison. Like, you know, this, this law is directly impacting people. And we see a bunch of people either arrested by a sort of insane dogberry figure like Elbow, who we aren't going to talk about. Um, you know, people are being dragged to prison and Lucio and the Duke have this exchange where Lucio says, uh, sort of, of Angelo. Why, what a ruthless thing is this in him for the rebellion of a codpiece to take away the life of a man? Would the Duke that is absent have done this? Ere he would have hanged a man for the getting a hundred bastards, he would have paid for the nursing a thousand. He had some feeling of the sport. He knew the service and that instructed him to mercy. And the Duke himself says to Lucio, I never heard the absent Duke much detected for women. He was not inclined that way. And this was the point in act three where we were like, hold on. <laughs> because I think there's a, there's a couple things here. Because I think we're given a lot of reason to think it's possible Lucio is lying. Yeah. You know, he sort of says, he goes on to say, um, I was an inward of his, of the Dukes. A shy fellow was the Duke. Um, and, you know, kind of goes on and on about like, I know him, I know him. We'll return to that line. Uh, and yeah, will. the Duke clearly doesn't know really who Lucio is. So we're sort of like, okay, so he doesn't actually have the relationship with the Duke that he thinks he has. But we know from the first scene and the Duke's own words that he was getting up to all kinds of sexual shenanigans. So yep. either he's mounting this really pathetic defense of himself mm-hmm. to someone who knows better <laughs> Or you interpret it the way we both really want to interpret it. Well, yeah. And I mean, what's interesting is that, oof, yeah, it's. I mean, because, okay, to return to the line that I just quoted, Lucio yeah. says, sir, I was an inward of his, a shy fellow was the Duke, and I believe I know the cause of his withdrawing. Mm-hmm. The Duke says, what I prithee might be the cause. And Lucio says, no, pardon, tis a secret must be locked within the teeth and the lips. Which again, might just be, Lucio doesn't know. And he's just bullshitting, excuse me. Um, And, you know, blowing hot air to make it seem like he is more connected than he really is. But it is just this weird, like, (laughs) I mean, we don't know though, really. We don't. And they go on, it's a a weirdly long exchange and and a long kind of, um, There is a world in which, I mean, as soon as we got to it in this read, I was like, oh my God, I really, really want to direct a version of this scene where, where Lucio has like had sex with the Duke and recognizes that it's him because it's honestly, it gets all the way to. Um, Maybe when the Duke goes cruising, he also dresses as a friar. <laughs> or I mean, I just I love the idea that the that Lucio can you know can yeah. do what apparently no one else can and see through the friar costume. I mean, but, I don't know that anyone else knows him. Like this is one of the few cases where he avoids Angelo. Yes, he does. He does. Yeah, and he so avoids the Angelo whole, until the very end. Until the very end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's like he's really not putting himself in danger of being recognized, except 
possibly apparently by Lucio who right and the people don't know what he looks like like critically you know yeah. I mean like anybody any of the kind of citizens don't know what he looks like and of course you know the sneak of the costume is that people trust you know people trust a friar so people keep you know confiding things to him and you get a hood and you get and you get a hood but um there's also like you know that t- this little scene between them goes on to um uh you know, the Duke basically, he's like, you can't, you don't, you don't know him. You can't know him. He sort of calls him out and Lucio says, sir, I know him and I love him. And the Duke says, love talks with better knowledge and knowledge with dearer love. And then Lucio says, come, sir, I know what I know. (laughs) Which like, you could, you could play it so hard if you wanted to. If you you want, I mean, but there is this thing, you know, we said at the beginning, it's like, there's this idea that like the city is corrupt in the image of its corrupt leader. Yeah yeah and but it's like there's an idea that like but there's something else going on here like this is not just a duke who has a lot of sex like this city is so messed up and he himself recognizes like this is a problem on a whole other scale that I can't even deal with that like you just feel like even on a symbolic level you get these hints that like the duke has been doing something more than just sleeping around before he gets married yeah yeah i mean it's just filled with tantalizing little moments and because lucio is a character who has this like amazing fluidity through all stratas of society you know this thing, I, I do kind of want to reference a specific production right now, just because it's a little bit in my brain and it's like so close to what this version would be. So um, I don't think I had read this play since 2017 when um, Simon Godwin did a production who we've already mentioned on this podcast. Hello, Simon. Um, Simon did a production of this at Theater for New Audience here in New York that I worked on with him. And so we were in rehearsal for like five weeks on it. And then I kind of stayed with the production after Simon left. So I saw it a lot in 2017. And Simon did a really particular thing with this play where um, he created like an immersive entrance to the theater through the sort of streets of Vienna slash Mistress Overdone's brothel. Like he created a pathway, like a pre-show pathway that was like half an hour of, of material basically on the way into the show. And what it allowed was that members of the company were basically like in the brothel beckoning you and doing stuff. And um, it, it created a moment where the Duke toward the end, you know, kind of right before the play began, you got to see the Duke sort of like emerge from a weird room in like a, in a weird mask. And he was super like drunk and kind of coming apart, you know, his clothes all messed up. And then he kind of careened up the back stairs and his entrance into the play, once the actual play was beginning, was he sort of lurched onto the stage in the kind of dregs of a party. And then the kind of smash cut to the opening scene was that he had fallen asleep. He had passed out, wasted after this like intense night of partying. And then the first thing that happens is that he's covered with the sort of detritus of the night. And then Aeschylus walks in and finds him sort of asleep at the wheel. And then he had to get up and do, you know, that big first speech of like, of government, the properties to unfold, kind of pulling himself back together from the night before. And I thought about that a lot because it would be so easy to connect that to the sort of, what is the Duke really doing 
in the underworld kind of question that we're talking about, you know, it just makes me think of that. Like he, he almost did that idea, not in a gay way explicitly, but like the sense of, the sense of almost crisis that the Duke is in at the top of the show. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, it makes me think of like versions of the beginning of Henry the fourth part one where yeah, Hal course, is yeah. like, you know, if you want to show that Hal's really gone off the rails, you have him wake up with two women and a man. <laughs> and like, I don't, I, right. I, I, I don't want it to just be that like mm-hmm. sort of, you know, this, I think there's, I think if there's something here, it's something sort of more deeply embedded in yeah both this language about the Duke, but also like the thing that we've been circling around, which is the Duke's fixation on Angelo. And maybe yes. we can use that to roll into act, act four, four. Yeah. where um, the bed trick happens. Yes. And again, it's this question of like, you could solve, if your goal was to solve these women's problems, Right, exactly. You would do something different. Yeah. It would be a more boring play, maybe like, you know, or it could be, you could find an interesting play to tell about him solving their problems in a non-stupid way. But it's like, it is really clear that all of his actions are actually about punishing Angelo. Yes. Well, yes. And I mean, n- not to, um, to, to piggyback on that in an, in a thing that we were talking about when we were chatting and preparing for this the other day. Uh, we do prepare <laughs> um, for these. I know you, you maybe can't tell. We do work a little bit. The, just the idea that, that, yeah, it's all really about punishing Angelo. And not only that, the shape of the play, this was my kind of big realization in rereading it, is that the shape of the play as it bends toward Act 5 is not bending toward the restitution of justice for Isabella. It's bending toward as big a reveal about Angelo as the Duke can create in a public space. Right. You just layer on, Mm -hmm. he wants Angelo to sleep with Isabella or to seem to sleep with Isabella in order to shame him most comprehensively. Um, Also, we get the amazing line from Lucio in this the amazing description of him as the old fantastical duke of dark corners. So good. That's such a good little exchange too. I mean, more Lucio in Act 4. Yeah, cause, yeah, because he says, if the old fantastical duke of dark corners had been at home, he had lived. And he's speaking about Claudio, who they think has been executed by this point. Speaking of things and, that don't need to happen unless you want as many crimes as possible to pin on Angelo. Exactly. And the cost of making everyone think that Claudio is really dead is that Isabella goes through the trauma of thinking that her brother is really dead and that Angelo slept with her or thinks he has and executed him anyway, you know, and like also like the element of like part of the Duke's plan. I mean, maybe we should just let act four and five blur together because actually the division between them is completely nonsensical. Very blurry. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's also that she must declare publicly that this has happened to her. She has yes. to publicly shame herself as having been, I mean, mm-hmm. it's sort of unclear in how Assaulted she presents it. Yeah. Raped slash, you know, a whore for agreeing to sleep with him. And then he yeah. double crossed her because the whole thing is she sleeps with him. It's actually Mariana. Mm-hmm. And then the next morning, uh, Angelo orders Claudio killed anyway. And then yeah. they come up with this whole plan where they behead someone else and blah, 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 blah. But it's just like, I mean, the thing I wrote in my notes is 
if the Duke's goal was to help Isabella, he wouldn't gaslight her so much. Listen, he it's it's because it's all about this big reveal. And like, yeah, it's he it's such a great point that he that a key part of the plan is that Isabella has to enter. So there is also a weird little scene in um, Act Four where Angelo and Esther have received letters from the duke who is in poland question mark that's you know what where he says he is whatever they've received letters from him that are like i will meet he's he says by you know some great injunctions i am bound to enter publicly so he writes to them being like meet me at the gates of the city at like dawn and uh you know and then some shit's gonna go down basically and they have this little scene like late at night angelo and Aeschylus, where they're like hey why and then they're like (laughs) i don't know see you tomorrow and they're they're being told to bring like everybody important in the government basically like bring everyone meet you at the gates of the city and then angelo escalus goes home and then angelo has another little kind of check-in moment with the audience where he's like you know i'm i'm terrified and i feel horrible i'm eaten up inside by what i've done you know what this just made me think of it's like Mm. in a lot of plays like one of the sort of tools available to like politically disempowered people especially women sort of in plays but also just like in literature going back to like the ancient Greeks speaking of Antigone is that Mm. women can publicly lament and publicly complain and not complain in like the sort of colloquial sense Mm -hmm. of like whining but like make a complaint to whom should I complain (laughs) exactly exactly (laughs) and so that he is setting up the stage for a very effective public complaint by Isabella, mm-hmm. but that is a tool of disempowered people. Yes. You don't yeah. need this. You have That's the right. power to resolve this in a way that doesn't require her to kind of shame herself and think her brother has died and cause her, force her and Mariana to like get on their knees and beg in public. Yeah. 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 Yes. I mean, my God, it, um, it's, it, It goes the whole way. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's such a, you know, I think something that people talk about a lot in Shakespeare is like the characters who are playmakers, the characters Mm. who stage scenes because they are Mm -hmm. very clever and, you know, can kind of manipulate people sometimes benignly and sometimes less so. And like, this Mm -hmm. is such a, he's setting up a scene, but it's not the scene of justice for Isabella. It's the scene of disgrace for Angelo. And in a way, like setting up the moment when Angelo knows the Duke knows who he really is. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what you just made me think of? This is, this is um, another line that I wrote down that I thought about a lot in terms of just like, what is this all for? What is it for? You know, Mm -hmm. I think that this is even, oh no, this is a so one of the only other people the Duke speaks to in disguise who could recognize him is Aeschylus. He, right. They run into each other on the street and there's a little moment. And of course, like, you know, I, I have this particular production that I worked on in my mind, but it is a great opportunity for you to, to um, demonstrate to the audience that the Duke is nervous about being recognized by some people. And Aeschylus is one. And he said, the Duke asks Aeschylus of what disposition was the Duke. And Aeschylus says, one that above all other strifes contended especially to know himself. Mm -hmm. 
And I thought about that a lot as we sort of bring act four and five toward their conclusion, you know, of like, what is it all for? I mean, I think that, I mean, I have to think of King Lear. He hath ever but slenderly known himself. (laughs) Yeah. I think that Shakespeare doesn't think well of people who orchestrate Mm. attempts, public attempts to reveal other people while failing to know themselves. themselves. Yes. And you know what's, that's so brilliant because you know what's, I'm having a complicated thought that I might be able to articulate. We'll see. Um, About, you know how like the entire play as set up by by the Duke seems to be a, a test of hypocrisy aimed at Angelo. This thing of, you know, there are all of these kind of, you know, measure still for measure in the big judgment speech that he says of like, you should not be able to pass a judgment if you are damaged inside. Like if you, I mean, if you have the same, like- Let who he is without sin. Yeah. yeah. Who, who, the whole play circles that idea of like, who is capable of passing judgment in a world like this? And so it seems to be, a series of lessons based around how little Angelo knows himself. But it's so weird if you lift above that and look at the dramatic structure the Duke has created and think about it as a self-experiment of like, is this all, you know, I mean- Well, like- I mean, it reminds me of this this line that you quoted from the beginning about like, let's see what power does to him, basically. It's yeah. almost like, surely it'll corrupt him the same way it corrupted me, right? This right. would happen and- to anyone. And then it does. And then it does. But I mean, something I was like really thinking about was I realized that. So, I mean, we're going to have to return to the bed trick. But when we get to the final scene, Mm -hmm. Angelo is exposed and he says, like, kill me. I want to die. And it's like he is willing to accept the punishment he meted out for other people, which is something pretty much no one else in the play is willing to do. Yes. Yeah. And so so. What happens in the final scene, and it's it's this is one of those act fives that's just one scene, you know, it's just yeah. a long, a one long kind of moment. Should we go Do into act five to? or should we should we double back to the bed trick super fast and then yeah, let's do it. Let's I'm do sorry. it. I'm sorry. We've no, gotten no. so scattered. I apologize to the listener, but no, no. Well, it's because just... we're, it's because we're chasing concepts, not plot because it's like, you know, what even is the sort of stew of the latter half of this? Yeah. But yeah, back to the garden shed. <laughs> I mean, I think that like the thing I really, I mean, this all connects in a way in that, I mean, basically I'm like, are bed tricks gay? <laughs> I think, I mean, the thing is, your thing about what it sex as test, sex as punishment, whatever. It's like, if they're arranged by a man for another man, yes. I mean, like- Right, I mean- Yeah, like, I mean, it's like you sort of, I kept thinking about one of the most sort of heavily queer coded, for lack of a better phrase, characters in Shakespeare, which is Pandarus and Troilus and Cressida, not to do like a super deep cut. We'll get to that play. (laughs) But- that play really takes pains to emphasize that him arranging things mm. for Troilus and Cressida is a way for him to vicariously have sex with Troilus. Yes. And even, and here's what's interesting. What we're talking about here is if this is about the Duke arranging Angelo's sex, vicariously having sex with Angelo or whatever, it doesn't necessarily have to be vicariously having sex for gratification with Angelo. It feels like it's about having vicarious sex for punishment with Angelo and also the fact that it's a bed trick means there's this whole other layer of only I know who he's really having sex with. 
Yeah. Yeah. And there's another layer even on top of that, which, you know, I was super interested in when we were reading, which is that there's this super strange, when we introduce Mariana, finally, there's this really strange kind of tidbit of backstory that the Duke is like, oh, since Angelo jilted her, we've become really good friends. And she greets him by being like, oh, my friend, hi. And you know what's really dr dramaturgically confusing is that um, she seems to greet him like he's been coming to her disguised as a friar for a long time. Which it's, again is just like, if your goal was to help Mariana, why didn't you do it a long time ago? It's really strange, but like, but he, he frames it as like, oh, my good friend Mariana. And she treats him as like, oh, my, my old confessor, my friend, you know? And so what's weird is after Angelo casts off this woman, the Duke separately becomes really good friends with her. And then what eventually happens is that he forces Angelo to marry her Mm -hmm. since they were pre-contracted and he went back on his word and now they've had sex. So that's, you know, a consummation. A and double, yeah. yeah. And, and it's weird because she's sort of somehow, I got obsessed with the idea that she's sort of a woman they share because the Duke made it. So he got to know her and then gave her back to Angelo. And then we're going to get to it. I know, but the Duke's incredibly complex and strange proposal to Isabella at the end of this play is also, you know, he marries Angelo to one woman they sort of share and then attempts to marry himself to the other woman that yeah. they share. And I think that returns to the thing I said back when we were discussing act one, which is that like in the end, the other mm -hmm. person who tricks Isabella and kind of maybe tries to force her into marrying mm -hmm. him and thus having sex with him is the, is duke, the duke yeah in the yeah. end he kind of i mean he kills her brother air quotes in letting her think that he's dead you know mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. convinces right. her to have sex when she doesn't want to even though she's not actually the one who has to do it but she has to present yes. herself publicly as having done that like he right. causes all the things she feared to happen except yes. for then at the end he's like just kidding and then he's like want to marry me though <laughs> maybe i mean and so is there can we skip to the marriages or is there more you want to cover from the first half of act five not really no i mean because the i'm really struck by your point about how he orchestrates how he playwrights the setup of act five, mm -hmm. including, you know, Isabella rocks in with, um, you know, she does her part. Well, she comes in really hot with, you know, her first line ends with, you know, give me justice, 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 justice. You know, I mean, it's this massive appeal. And, um, she also has, again, just because I was following all of the seeming weirdness, she has a little bit of text that I wanted to quote because it's just like sticks in my head so much in her first, in her accusing part of act five, before we get to the marriages, she says, the Duke, who she still doesn't know is the friar at this point, he appears as himself first, then as the friar, and then is unmasked by Lucio in like a tussle. And then they all realize it's the same guy, which is crazy. But she says to the Duke, make not impossible that which but seems unlike. Tis not impossible, but one, the wickedest caitiff on the ground may seem as shy, as grave, as just, as absolute, as Angelo, even so may Angelo in all his dressings, characters, titles, forms, be an arch villain, believe it, royal prince, if he be less, he's nothing, but he's more, had I more name for badness. Like she just launches into the evil of 
seeming one thing and being another and sort of holds forth on it for a long time. And the, the dramatic irony is that she's speaking to someone who has been seeming one thing and being another since the first moment of this play. Yeah, I mean, and it's just, I mean, this is one of the things I find so difficult about this play is that like all of this passionate energy is expended towards something that even she knows isn't true. I know. I know. And like, it's just so hard to know what to do with that. Like as an audience member, you're like, I kind of, I want to get riled up about this, but also. But we know he didn't really. But we know he didn't really. And like, obviously he also still did bad things, but like, that's Mm -hmm. not what we're talking about. Like, right. that's not what he's being accused of. It's, I mean, and like, there's, again, something that feels really contemporary and like, oh, well, no one's going to care unless he actually did it. Like, you know, the threat right. to sleep with her isn't enough. It has to have happened. Right. And what's weird is that the whole thing is, the whole thing is a gotcha of Angelo. But what's extra weird about it is that Mariana and Isabella seem to think that they, I think when Act 5 begins, think that they know what the Duke is going to do, think that they know as much as the Duke about how this is going to play out. We're going to get him to marry Mariana. He's going to be, he's going to be publicly humiliated for what he asked of Isabel, et cetera. And that is true. But after the Duke is like, marry her, you know, he then sentences Angelo to death in an extreme move that the women clearly didn't see coming. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, this, the decision to sentence Angelo to death and the decision to conceal from Isabella that her brother isn't actually dead are the two things that really prove this is not about them. The Duke does not care about their feelings. He does not care about their happiness. He doesn't care about what happens to them Mm -hmm. along the way towards his greater goal, which is to destroy Angelo. Yes. It's about the weird sense of betrayal that he feels because of what Angelo did. And yet the thing that Angelo did is the thing that he set him up to do, suspected that he would do and seemed on some level to hope that he would do. And also when it comes to the Mariana stuff that he'd already done and the Duke had been outwardly fine with. Right. For an undefined but not brief period of time. Right. And you know what's really crazy is that like when you watch Act 5 happening, it's an absolute roller coaster of a scene because you get there's so many kind of peaks to it. Because after the Duke, I mean, the moment where the penny drops for Angelo about the way in which he's been played is a really incredible kind of moment of the scene. And it's one that always really stuck in my mind watching it over and over is the moment after all of the initial kind of firestorm when Angelo looks at the Duke, realizes that there's sort of no way out and that he knows everything. And the Duke says, you know, something like, you know, the Duke sort of looks at him and is like, what do you got now? You know, he's like, no, really, what, what, uh, what are you going to do now? And that confrontation, that moment sort of, that feels to me what the whole play has been building toward. Yeah. And then what he does is the extraordinary thing. Like you said, if he's, he's like, kill me. Yeah. He's that's the punishment. Like, and I accept it. And what's weird about it though, too, is that part of why, part of why the connection between those two men who have been like, you know, the Duke has been obsessed with Angelo this entire time from a distance when they're finally Mm -hmm. next to each other in act five. And the Duke is like, what are you going to do? I feel like a real part of the, of the, the sense of Angelo's despair is that he can't be, he cannot bear to be looked at 
this way mm. by the Duke is yeah. that finally, you know, like to have it all turned on him because he's totally fine and stays cool and stays in his seat throughout all of Isabella's lamenting, even publicly. He yeah, stays it's much more humiliating rigid. for her than for him. Yeah, because Angelo is just like, this woman's crazy. Yeah. And it looks like that's going to work. And the Duke is like, mm, for sure, before he reveals. But as soon as the Duke, another man, this, you know, powerful man who invested him with this trust turns around and is like, I know what you are. Then Angelo's like, end my life. Yeah. It's wild. And yeah, it is the first as well. It's the first instance of like. So let's just come to the infamous ending of this play is that the Duke basically says, hey, Isabella, I have something funny to tell you. Want to get married? We'll talk about it later. And she doesn't reply and the play ends. Um, She is a nun. Let's just remind everyone of that. Uh, But it is the culmination of a series of the Duke using marriage as a punishment for people. The first is Angelo. Your punishment is to marry Mariana. And then when she pleads for Angelo's reprieve, he's basically Mm -hmm. like, fine, this will just be your punishment to have to be married to her. You know, Mm -hmm. love her. She deserves it, basically. And then he punishes Lucio for talking crap about him by basically saying, I know you sleep with tons of prostitutes. You impregnated one of them and you have to marry her. And Lucio is aghast yeah horrified at the prospect and so it's very like driven home that this is a punishment for him yeah yeah I mean yeah Lucio is like I'd rather be whipped and hanged or whatever and then he's like nope marry her and then he turns to Isabella and is like your turn it's rough I mean it's it's or like our turn our turn and it's just it's Here's, I mean, so to return to like the point that I was making way back at the beginning is like, this is a city, a world, a play that finds heterosexuality vaguely disgusting Mm -hmm. and frightening and it might kill you. Um, You will get chlamydia and die, if you will. Um, And... (laughs) Little Mean Girls reference. Yeah, just like some vintage cinema. Uh, But... You would think, because it is like a thing that it's it's premarital sex that Claudio and Juliet have had, and that is a problem. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, is kind of repeatedly premarital sex is the problem. So you're kind of like, okay, well, so maybe once people get married, yeah, that will kind of redeem the notion of sex. And then these are the marriages we get. Yeah. We don't end with like, and here's a couple that can make us feel good about any of this, or like, you know everyone's married and suddenly now like I'm thinking of like you know at the end of as you like it yeah is another play where a bunch of couples kind of get smashed together a little bit against their will in the closing minutes Shakespeare still goes out of his way to have the sort of most potentially unwilling couple be like actually this is fine actually I'm I'm into it yeah but Angelo doesn't really get to say that he basically just says if you say so and Isabella doesn't say anything No, and that, of course, is is the most confusing and and murky thing about the end of this play. Yeah, and like if it's not gay, it's certainly anti-straight. Yes, it is. It is anti-straight, partly because 
if you've spent the whole play obsessed with whether or not another man is going to turn into the kind of self-gratifying, unjust, um, corrupted ruler you believe yourself to be. Driven like, specifically by sex. Yeah. And then you arrange the sexuality that seals his sort of fate, essentially. And then your reward for yourself at the end of that journey is to marry a nun. What does it mean to try to marry a nun? I mean, Isabella's already said it. It means she'll kill herself. Well, that's the thing. She had the only text that she has had. The only sex that she's been offered in this play is with Angelo against her will as a transaction. Rather than do that, she would die. We don't get to learn how she feels about the sex that's being offered to her at the end of the play. (laughs) Unless she's not being offered sex at all. Because a surefire way to have a marriage with no sex in it is to marry a woman who'd rather be a nun. Exactly. I mean, like, is this a mutual beard situation? We could be telling that story. (laughs) Like, it's, I mean, yeah, it's like, when you are so not straight, do you just become Mm -hmm. gay by default? (laughs) Well, I mean, if you're obsessed with another man and not the woman you're talking to for the whole play. I mean, you know, there's (laughs) that as well. But it's just like, yeah, it's, it's, there is a world in which there, I think no matter what the Duke and Isabella have, it isn't sexual. It doesn't feel sexual at all. I think the most reasonable and least abusive version of the story is that they have developed a sort of collaborative companionate sort of mutually, um, you know, cause Isabella has all kinds of weird moments in the first, in act three, I think when he springs the plan on her to begin with at every point when he checks in with her and is like, this is the plan. Do you get it? Isabella has language where she's like, yeah, that'll work. I like, I'm into it. You know, I mean, less and less as the play goes on and as her brother is fake killed, but like in the beginning, there is a sort of active collaborative energy between the two of them. And Mm -hmm. the most that I think you can build successfully is that. And in a, in a world, in a world where heterosexuality is so horrible and everyone are, is such damaged people by the end of this play, you could frame the proposal as some kind of mutual offer of refuge, except for the fact that he's done all these, he's gone out of his way to do all of these unnecessary sort of psychological torments on her you know and also except for the fact that she already had a refuge which was being a nun let her be a nun I mean but it is like it's not like it's one of these plays where you sort of get this vague sense of like oh well marriage will protect her like right you know she'll have to marry someone so being a nun would protect her (laughs) yeah like she's good it's it's just like I mean, it's baffled everyone for centuries. Yeah. But it is. Um, so to talk about another specific production, I, I'm mm. afraid I can't remember the director, but it was a production starring Rama Lagari at the Young mm. Vic um, in like 2015. 
Um, it had a lot of inflatable sex dolls in it. Oh my God. So did ours. Yes. I was about to say as is contractually obligated from the, from Shakespeare's estate. When you, when you license the play from them, they say, yeah, you can do it, but start blowing up those sex dolls, (laughs) get your interns, um, blowing up those sex dolls. Anyway, uh, at the end, um, the Duke's sort of final monologue was delivered at like lightning speed. And he just sort of like physically grabbed all the couples and like mashed them together like they were you know Barbies kissing that's insane and also like the Aeschylus was played by a woman and there's like all these people on stage that's and he like, grabbed yeah. Aeschylus and grabbed some random man was like and you two and like just like it was everyone on stage paired up until the only two people left were him and Isabella and he sort of grabbed her hand like straight out to the audience said the last line of the play and there was just this beat of everybody like it wasn't even everybody looking yeah. upset it was just everybody looking like what dazed yeah and then the lights went out before you could even sort of finish the thought and like I think that was my favorite version of the ending I've ever seen where you're just sort of like this is bewildering and for all of these couples Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the illusion of Mm -hmm. being in love that's, I really love that as an idea because I think the mania of it is really right. And what's weird about it is that we've gone on this journey, as you said from the very beginning, the state of affairs at rise is sexuality is bad and it's destroying our city. And it's emanating from, I mean, this, this question of one emanating from you know, above. Like, yeah. And the question of if what he's actually trying to do is know himself better he goes on this journey and if the ending of it is this insane reassertion of heterosexuality even though you already know that to be the problem but it feels like well maybe in this form it'll work maybe this time now that we're all married it's okay yeah I mean and like not to like (laughs) I'm sort of thinking about King Lear again. The idea is like, if you've spent the whole play orchestrating the destruction of the one person you actually care about, like what's left? It's not that Angela doesn't deserve it on some level. Yeah. But it's like, you made this happen because you didn't know yourself. Because you didn't know yourself. I feel like that is the sort of, sneaky wise because it's a random Aeschylus line I really feel like that is the sort of central crime though because it's like so the Duke's speech at the end where he does all that pairing and now I'm really picturing it that way which is great it is a lot like Rosalind's last speech and as you like it where she does um she she addresses each of the couples Mm -hmm. that she has in some respect sort of play written together but the Duke's version of it is so like it's just, what does it, what does it mean if you have, I mean, God, speaking of an abuse of power, it's like the actual worst abuse of power in this play is the Duke writing a play about himself at the expense of all these other people. It's well, just right, like, exactly. It's like everybody's his little dolls at the yeah. end that he just pairs up. I mean, it is the idea that like, not to get, I guess, crass, but it's mm-hmm. like, if the shape of a comedy is to bring the audience by the end, a sense of satisfaction at seeing the consummation of a love that has been delayed over the course of the play, we gain no satisfaction from any of these pairs. No, that's true. We don't, we don't. And, and it's so, it's so, um, 
pointed. It feels deliberate. You know what yes. I mean? By the playwright. I mean, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like a failure to be a conventional comedy to me. It feels like an experiment in a totally different direction that is like in some way unclassifiable. Yes. I have two thoughts about that. One is that there is nothing stopping Shakespeare from making Isabella and the Duke fall in love over the course of this play. Exactly. I mean, you might have him have to not be disguised disguised as a friar, but like that isn't the law. He but could be disguised why, as something else. But that's what exactly that is such a deliberate choice. That's like that's why it's so sexless, because the most that it is is a collaborative friendship, because it's a frat like on the face of it, it's a friar talking to a nun. Yeah, it is like about how not to have sex. Fraternal like a <laughs> Alliance. And I was really struck. I don't, I can't remember now what you said that made me think this, but in terms of like, oh, the idea that like maybe in this form, yes, the sex will sort of be okay and also maybe right. will mean something, will mean what it's meant to mean. I'm really struck given conversations that we've had so far that like this is a play kind of without friendship. The yes. only I mean, like a little bit Angelo and Aeschylus are friends, but it's like kind of their colleagues. They're colleagues. They're colleagues. And, you know, actually it's a play with a bunch of explicit betrayals of friendship. You know, Pompey's yeah. being dragged to prison and he's like, Lucio, bail me out. And Lucio's like, absolutely not. And then just yeah. leaves. And like Lucio know? is kind of friends with Claudio, but like can't, they don't have access to each other throughout the play. Yeah. So like that sort of gets funneled through Isabella and thus has to be more distant because, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Lucio's a slut and Isabella's She's a nun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can I make it any more obvious? Um. <laughs> he was a slut. She was a nun. Um, they were inexplicable friends in this play. What more can I say? Yeah. Although I have to say, sidebar, the funniest scene in this play is the scene where Lucio tries to explain to Isabella how sex works. Yes. I <laughs> mean, it's amazing. You do sort of really get the sense of like, this is your friend's little sister or older yeah, sister, right. like who you yeah. don't really know, but like you feel a weird connection with because they're related to like someone mm -hmm. you're good friends with. But it is yeah. like, it is also a play that unlike some of the other plays where we've found queerness between like Hamlet and Horatio, yeah. there is there no, no friends. There's no friendship for an outlet it right. all gets stuck in the confines of heterosexuality even though it is a play obsessed about a man obsessed with another man it isn't a man he's a friend of necessarily I mean I'm, I'm we I'm don't holding, know we, we don't never know. see them together no I mean yeah it's it's a play about a man obsessed with a man who he promotes and then abandons and then comes back to you know punish and we have, I think, I think we get a pretty clear picture of how the Duke feels about Angelo. Yeah. He praises him extensively in the first scene. And even when he's sort of expressing his doubts about like maybe power will corrupt him, it's still like you're thinking about him a lot. We yeah. have no clue how Angelo feels about the Duke. No, no, none, none. Because as soon as, as Isabella walks into the play, it's all Angelo ever talks about again. Yeah. And like, even before that, like all we kind of get is like, wow, he has a lot of faith in me. I'm not sure I'm up for this. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It's weirdly a play obsessed with bodies that also is a thought experiment. And like, there aren't any actual relationships, you know, that's what's so weird mm -hmm. about it is that it's a thought experiment obsessed with bodies, but not you know, it's shaped so differently from, from so many other Shakespeare plays. Like there's not a real romance at the center. There's not a family at the center. And so like, even in the history plays, you know, like often 
they're sneaky, you know, you feel like it's about a state, a play about a state, but really inevitably it's a play about a family. Whereas in this one, it's like, it's a play about the state that's about the state. But it's also like, like, again, it's about the corruption of the state as embodied by the head mm -hmm. of state. Exactly. But in the same way as Romeo and Juliet, it's the idea that like the messed upness of this city is the messed upness Mm -hmm. of its leaders and a bunch of other people are going to get caught up in that. Right. And yet what's weird about what is so unsatisfying about the ending is that if it's in some way about the Duke's relationship to himself, he doesn't know himself any better by the end of the play. No. Because marrying a woman is not the solution to his problems. Especially marrying this nun. And that is all kind of gay. If, as you said, if not gay, certainly not straight. <laughs> anti-straight. Anti-straight. Like, it's the different, you know, it's like you could be not racist or you're anti-racist. Like, this, this isn't just not is anti-straight. Yeah, it is aggressively opposed. It's aggressively opposed to straightness. But along the way, it has to make sure that we also find sex disgusting. <laughs> Thanks, Measure for Measure, for, if nothing else, the phrase teeming foison via Lucio in that scene. It's horrible. So gross. I feel like this play is when Shakespeare is spending too much time for ben jo- with Ben Johnson. He was like, my plays need to be more gross. Ben's plays are so disgusting. And then we're all like, no, Shakespeare, stop having coffee with Ben. <laughs> Leave him alone. Oh my goodness. So I think there's a lot of places we could go from here. At the end of every episode, we take a moment to pause and consider what play we might discuss next. But I think this week Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to cheat a little bit. We are. Because our next episode is going to come out on Halloween. And there's really only- On Halloween. There's only one play we can do as it will be a two-week period that will encompass Halloween and Bonfire Night. And that, Mm -hmm. of course, is- Obviously. Macbeth. It has to be Macbeth. Come on. Yeah, so- Spend the next two weeks. Read Macbeth along with us. We'll see you on Halloween. In the interim, you can find us on Instagram. You can at This Shakespeare is Gay. Or on Twitter at This Shakes is Gay, S-H-A-X. Um, and you can find us on the podcast proving platform of your choice, which you know because you're successfully listening to this. But while you're listening, <laughs> you should rate us, leave us a review, share us with a friend. We would really appreciate it. Yay! See you soon.